Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I want to start with you this morning by thinking together as we look at Colossians 2 about the idea of exclusivity. Exclusivity. Exclusivity has a certain allure, a certain appeal to it. You'll understand this, I think, when you think about the new restaurants in town that are really hard to get into or particular clubs or organizations that it's very, very difficult to become a member of. It seems like very often the harder it is to become the member of an organization, the more prestigious that organization is, right? A good example of that is Augusta National Golf Club. Augusta National is where the Masters golf tournament is played in Augusta, Georgia, every April. And it's one of, in my opinion, the most beautiful places that I've ever seen. It's just an incredible golf course. I'm not a golfer, but I love to watch the Masters for the skill of the players and the sheer beauty of the course. Now, you can be a member of Augusta National Golf Club, but it's famously one of the most difficult country clubs in the world, probably the most difficult country club in the world to be a member of. There are under 200 members even now, and those members, along with anyone who's ever won a master's tournament, comprise the whole membership of Augusta. Bill Gates, the uh, CEO and founder of Microsoft, and by many accounts, the wealthiest man in the world, and I think this is kind of funny, has been trying to become a member of Augusta for 15 years and they will not let him in. I guess the computer nerdery factor plays in his favor on a negative way, but they won't let Bill Gates in to Augusta. So if Bill Gates can't bribe his way in, you know it's an exclusive place. You might have fallen prey in various ways in your life to the allure of exclusivity, I think that applies in our spiritual lives as well. There is such a thing as spiritual exclusivity. That was an issue that we've seen already in this ancient church in Colossae, which is in present-day Turkey, that the Apostle Paul wrote this very, very old but very, very relevant letter to. They were, in Colossae, intrigued with the idea of spiritual exclusivity. What do I mean by that? Here's what that means. That's the idea that if you get the secret, if you get the right information, you become an insider. 
you become someone who has access to new forms of power and life and vibrancy. That was a teaching that had affected the Christians in Colossae, and Paul wrote this letter in large part to counteract that tendency in them and to counteract that tendency in us, because I believe that all of us are tempted by the power of spiritual exclusivity. We're going to talk about that this week and next week together. Paul's introduced himself in this letter. We've seen that already. And now in verse 6 of chapter 2, we get to the real heart of Colossians. And this section goes all the way through chapter 4, verse 6, where we really see Paul get after this idea of exclusivity, this idea of what we have called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a very, very old heretical teaching Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge that basically said if you get the right form of knowledge, you really become a varsity level Christian. But until you get the right knowledge, you're still on the JV team or maybe even like the middle school A team. But you've got to have the gnosis, the knowledge to become varsity level. It was big time spiritual exclusivity and Paul begins to address it here. You could say that these verses we're talking about this week give us his positive teaching. That is why Jesus is enough. And next week at the end of chapter two, we're going to see his negative teaching, why the secret is bad, actually. So Paul's main point for us this morning, the Holy Spirit's main point for us this morning is to understand that Jesus Christ, listen, you're going to like it when I say this, if you're a Christian, but you actually don't really believe this. Jesus Christ is enough for you. Jesus Christ is enough. He's all you need. For your growth and godliness, if you have Jesus, you have enough. Last week, Paul said that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is like the genie's lamp in Aladdin. It's the only thing worth our focus, even in a place like the cave of wonders that's filled with shiny and beautiful things. And so Paul says, verse 6, walk in what you have already received. That is Jesus himself. And then he encourages us to be firmly rooted, built upon, and established in Jesus. And so what I want to ask this morning is how? How can we do that? How can we walk in Jesus if we've already received him? Well, the bottom line is we can do that by believing, by believing what is true about Jesus Christ. We walk in Jesus by seeing Jesus as he really is in all of his wisdom and all of his grace. Paul's constant answer for how to grow, his constant answer for how to change is to look to Jesus, to see Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to know Jesus more fully. And that's what we continue to learn about today as we study these verses. Let me summarize it for you like this. The Christian life is about seeing that Jesus is enough for you. The Christian life is about seeing that Jesus is enough for you. We're going to look at four reasons here for why Jesus is enough. Four reasons the text gives why Jesus is enough. So let's do that together, okay? The first reason that Jesus is enough is because you are filled by Jesus. Look at verse 9. Paul says, In him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So that's basically a repeat of what he said earlier in chapter 1. Jesus is God, to put it very simply. And to use theological language, Jesus is fully God and at the same time, fully man. He is two natures in one person. 
And we saw a few weeks ago, and Paul says again here, if you want to see what the real God is like, the answer is always, 100% of the time, to look to Jesus Christ. And then we read that this Jesus, in whom the fullness of deity dwells, this Jesus who is God himself, this Jesus fills us. Verse 10, you have been filled in him. Now that verb, you have been filled, is what the Greeks called the perfect tense. That means it refers to a past action that has ongoing consequences in our lives. So what's Paul saying here? What can we learn? What we learn is that when you trust by faith in Jesus Christ, when you are converted and you commit your life to Jesus, you are at that moment and forever filled with all the fullness of Jesus himself. God takes up residence in you and you in him. That is our inheritance through Jesus Christ. And of course, when you put it that way, hopefully we can see that nothing, nothing could be greater or more satisfying or more important than that reality. Paul's saying this because he wants us to ask ourselves, how can anyone claim that they have some other form of wisdom for us, some other form of power for us, when we are filled with the fullness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself? Paul's saying, hey, don't settle for what is a distant second best. Don't settle for what is a distant second best when the best, Jesus, the fullness of God is available to you by faith right now. The problem is, we often don't know that we've settled for second best until we experience the best. When I was uh, in college, I had a very, very good friend that drove a really nice vehicle. It was a brand new truck, and in the panhandle of Texas, trucks are like, you know, Ferraris, right? Similar to San Antonio, I imagine. And my friend and I would drive this truck around in the summers all the time and just think we were the coolest things around. And one day uh, we drove his truck. Well, let me say this. He drove his truck. I wanted to drive his truck, but he drove his truck. And we went over to his uncle's house for dinner. And uh, his uncle said, hey, guys, come in. I want to show you something. And he took us out into his garage. And there in his garage was a brand new red Corvette. And we were both kind of like, whoa. And his uncle said, you guys want to take it for a spin? And I was like, I'm in. So we got in the Corvette and uh, we went down Main Street in Canyon, Texas, where the speed limit is 30. And I will not tell you how fast I went, but the speed limit was 30. And uh, we realized at that moment that the car that we once thought was cool was a distant second best compared to this Corvette. We thought what we were in was awesome until we got in that vehicle. We didn't realize that all we had experienced was something that was second best until we experienced the best. That happens with cars, and that can happen in all kinds of facets of our life, right? It can happen with food. When you think Mexican food is Taco Bell, although Taco Bell, you know, pretty decent in my opinion, welcome to San Antonio, go find a good taco, right? It's really good stuff here. It can happen with food, it can happen with music, it can happen with cars, it can happen with golf clubs, etc. We can't know what we're missing with second best stuff until we get the best. And Paul's question for us, God's question for us is, are you spiritually settling for second best stuff in your life? Do you know 
if you're a Christian, that you can access the very power and wisdom of God himself by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life right now, right now, the best and the greatest is available to you through faith in Jesus Christ. So practically, right now in your life, are you in a, let's say you're in a confusing situation where you don't know what the right move is. The best wisdom is available for you in Jesus. Pray and seek him. Let's say you're in a hard season in your lives with your kids or with your spouse that's causing you sadness, it's causing you distress. Listen, the best hope and the best comfort is available for you right now through faith in Jesus. Seek Jesus. Let's say you're struggling to fight against some indwelling sin in your life that so often seems to dominate you. Listen, the greatest power is available to you in Jesus. Put sin to death through the power of the Spirit. Jesus, Paul says, is enough. Jesus is enough because he fills us with his fullness. That's the first reason. Secondly, Jesus is enough because we have been buried and raised with Jesus. That's what he gets at in verse 11 through the first part of verse 13. Now, these verses are a little bit thick and heavy, but really what Paul's getting at here is the change of identity that occurs when someone is united to Jesus Christ by faith. And really, these are incredible ideas that get us really to the very heart of the gospel. What Paul is saying in these verses is that what Jesus experienced, what Jesus experienced in his death and resurrection, we also experience with him right now in our inner lives. Look at verse 12. We have been, notice that's past tense, we have been buried with him. Also, you were also raised with him through faith. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him. Notice all those things speak about things in our past. Things that have already happened to us. To be a Christian doesn't just mean that Christ died for you. Although that's an amazing and true thing. It doesn't just mean that Christ died for you. It also means that you, in a way, died with Christ. The Christian is the one who participates right now in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your old identity, your old self, Paul calls it the man of sin or the flesh. It was killed when Jesus was killed on the cross. And you, Paul says, were raised to life in Christ. All Christians, if you're here and you've believed the gospel, you have experienced an inner resurrection from death already. We have been raised with him, Paul says. Now, in verses 11 and 12, he tells us that both circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament signify this death and resurrection with Jesus Christ. He says the point of circumcision all along has been to point to the, hint, to the inner reality of faith in Jesus. Look at verse 11. In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ. And then he says that baptism signifies the same thing. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith. So these two signs, one in the old covenant, the other in the new covenant, point us 
to the reality that what has happened to Jesus also has happened to us. F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, writes this. The death of Christ has affected the inward cleansing which the prophets associated with the new covenant. And of this Christian Christian baptism is the visible sign. Baptism not only proclaims that the old order is past and done with, it proclaims that a new order has been inaugurated. Now listen, it's really, really hard to overstate how important this is for you. We will spend an entire sermon on this in a couple of weeks because Paul comes back to it in chapter 3. But for now, let me just say that in this doctrine, in this teaching of our union with Jesus, we find the real key, the real secret to many things, but for one, to fighting and overcoming sin. Uh, Here's the grammar, the basic grammar of being a Christian. It is not, listen to me, this is so important, it is not obey so that you can get close to Jesus. That's what moralism teaches. That's what many of you have heard your entire life, and that is absolutely antithetical to the way of Jesus. It is not obey so that you can get close to Jesus. Rather, it is, according to Paul, you are so close to Jesus right now that you have already died and been raised. So obey. It's not The pathway to change is not, let's put this another way. The pathway to change is not put sin to death so that you can enter into life. That's not what the Bible says, friends. The pathway to change, on the other hand, is you have already died. You have already died to sin already, and you've already entered into life. So because of that, you can really put it to death. Now, how does that play out practically in your lives? This is the key to what it means to be a Christian. This is the key. If you don't understand this, you don't understand how the gospel changes you. Let's just use one example. Let's say you're an angry person. Let me just speak personally. I have anger issues sometimes. So how can the gospel help me change my anger? You lose your temper often, you sit, maybe. You scream at your family. You go overboard with coworkers. You're too blunt and direct. You're a pot waiting to boil over. How do you change? Now, the way we tend to try is by beating ourselves up over this and then trying harder not to be as angry. Now, ironically, that's just our anger turned inward. It's the same thing. We're just angry at ourselves instead of other people. And that keeps us in this vicious cycle that doesn't really promote lasting change. What does the gospel do? It tells us the way to change is to believe what is already true of you. To believe what Paul says here. You are dead You are dead to anger. It died when Jesus died. And you are right now alive with the power of the same God that raised Jesus from the dead. Right now. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised you up from death on the inside. One day that's going to be true on the outside as well. So God has made that true of you. Listen, you did nothing to get there on your own. Jesus did all of it for you. That's what we call grace. You just believed it and got access to divine power. So listen, stay with me. If that is really true, if that's really true of me, then I can access the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit and experience outwardly in my life what is already true inwardly. That happens by actually exercising faith, by believing 
that what happened to Jesus really is relevant for what happens to me now. When Jesus died, the power of sin was overcome in my life. I have died with Christ. When Jesus was raised, I received all that I need to actually fight against the problems I face. Ironically, change happens when we realize that God is the one who does it, not us. We work to overcome sin out of the reality of our new identity, which is freely given to us by Jesus. We don't work to overcome sin out of efforts to get a new identity. We work because we already have a new identity. You overcome anger not by trying to get the power to overcome anger. You overcome anger by believing that in Jesus, the power is already there for you. That's what it means to have faith. That's what it means to grow. And if that's true, then surely Jesus is enough. That makes all the difference in the world. Jesus is enough because he connects us to himself in his death and resurrection. So that in a sense, what's true of Jesus is also true of us. We're going to look at that more thoroughly in a couple of weeks. But that's a profoundly important thing for you. Jesus is enough because he fills us with himself. He's enough because he connects us to himself in his death and resurrection. Thirdly, Jesus is enough, Paul says, verse 13 and 14, because you are forgiven by Jesus. You're forgiven. Look at 13, second half. You've been raised with him through the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did that happen? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this God in Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul says here, verse 13, that one of the consequences to being connected to Jesus in his death and resurrection is forgiveness of sins. So to be spiritually raised from the dead in Christ means that the guilt, the guilt of our sins has been entirely, once for all, canceled. Now, without question, guilt is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. I heard Anne Lamott say recently that love is the most powerful force in the universe, but guilt is a close second. And Paul's language here where he uses phrases like the record of debt and its legal demands, refers that refers to the guilt that we all experience when we realize that we break God's law, that we're lawbreakers. When we realize that not only do we break it, but we, we can't keep it either. We know what we're supposed to do, even if we've never read a Bible in our life. You know what you're supposed to do. You have a sense of right and wrong, and you can't keep it perfectly or even come close. Paul tells us elsewhere in Romans that he would never have known what it means to covet if the law hadn't said, don't covet. In other words, part of the purpose of God's law is to show us that we can't keep it. <laughs> part of the purpose of God's law is to make it very, very clear, indisputably evident that we're really bad at obeying, at doing what God wants us to do, and at not doing what God doesn't want us to do. And that brings guilt. Think about it this way. Imagine, imagine that every time you looked in a mirror, um, you could see above your heads a scoreboard. And let's imagine that it's a scoreboard of your own personal moral performance. 
And uh, every time you think something that you shouldn't, say something that you shouldn't, do something that you shouldn't, or even look in a direction towards someone in a way that you shouldn't, boop, that scoreboard lights up. And imagine that it keeps a record in real time of your personal ethical wins and losses. It keeps a record of debt, to use the language Paul uses here, so that we can see our own performance updated constantly in real time. Now, think about it with me. Were that to exist, perish the thought. That'd be horrible. Wouldn't that be horrible? I mean, can I get an amen? That would be bad. Were that to exist, we would know the score all the time. We would see visually what we kind of know internally, that the debt is incalculably, incalculably, stacked against us. It'd be like 10 billion to negative 30. (laughs) And we would never catch up. Now, the Christian, the Christian is the one who has had his or her guilt removed. His or her guilt has been taken away. The Christian is the one whose scoreboard has been switched. The score is settled. Our debt, our guilt has been canceled. The gospel, the good news is that Jesus takes our guilt and he nails it to the cross. He paid the debt we all owe. He takes away our real guilt and the power of guilt over us. And that shows us again how Jesus changes us, how Jesus is enough. Because here's the fact. Here's the fact. Even if you're a Christian and you've known that for decades, even if you know that Jesus takes away our guilt, Christians all the time continue to be plagued. And racked with guilt. We still imagine that the spiritual scoreboard is above us. And it causes just doubt and dread and a lack of assurance. You ever feel that way? You might feel that way right this second. Plagued with guilt. Maybe you embrace Jesus by faith. You could explain to me perfectly the message of the gospel, but you feel that guilt is stealing like a dirty, rotten thief your joy in Jesus. How can you change? Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my heroes, a British pastor and preacher from the 20th century, he tells a story about the town that he was a pastor, a, a pastor of a church in this town early in his career, and uh, they had a revival in this church, and the town drunk The town drunk, who at the age of 72 began to come to church, experienced a dramatic conversion to faith in Jesus. And this man had lived a very evil life, but he heard the gospel and he believed. And uh, the great day came when this guy was going to be received into membership of the church, and he was going to come to his first communion. And uh, his joy was just indescribable. And everyone in the church was so happy. I mean, it really did change that church. And it changed the small town in which Jones was pastoring. And the man, the former town drunk, said, hey, this is the biggest thing that ever happened to me. And it was a glorious night, and they celebrated. But there was a sequel. Early the next morning, uh, Lloyd-Jones got woken up by a rabid knocking on his door. And uh, he opened the door to find the poor old man there the former town drunk, just looking the picture of misery and dejection. And he was just weeping uncontrollably. And Lloyd-Jones was amazed, especially what had happened, given what had happened the prior evening. And he asked him, what is, what's going on? What's the matter? And the man said, I was on my way home from the service, going home from communion. And suddenly I remembered something that I had done 30 years before. Um, I was in a bar 
drinking with some drinking buddies, and we were arguing about religion. And I, in, in contempt and derision, had screamed out, pardon my French, Jesus Christ is a bastard. And, and I remembered that like it was yesterday. And it all came back to me. And there I was, feeling sure that there's no forgiveness for me in this. And this one thing had cast this mound down into just utter hopelessness. And you know what Lloyd-Jones did? He opened up Colossians chapter 2, and he read to him, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands was canceled. This Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. Maybe you have that one sin, that one thing that you can't get out of your mind. And when Satan tempts you to despair, as we sing in Christ alone, and tells you of the guilt within, it breaks you and crushes you. Sing the rest of that stanza. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Listen, friends, the only power to overcome the plague and the stench of guilt is continued application of the gospel to our hearts. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus forgives all of our guilt. And remembering the cross helps us continue to defeat guilt's power when it plagues us, when that one sin haunts us, when that one memory tempts us to despair. Jesus Christ is enough. Isn't that good news? He's enough because he fills us with all his fullness. He's enough because he connects us to himself in his burial and resurrection. And he's enough because he is the God who forgives you no matter what you've done, no matter how far gone you think you are, no matter what that one sin might tempt you to believe about yourself. Jesus Christ cancels it. Last, lastly, Jesus is enough because we are triumphant. You're triumphant in Jesus. This has got to be quick because I'm running out of time. Verse 15. Um, On the cross, Paul says, Jesus not only pays the debt of our guilt, But verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Now, two quick things real quick. First, who are the rulers and authorities? What does that mean? It has multiple layers of meaning. First, as you might expect. Uh, On the one hand, it's a reference to the Jewish religious authorities and the Roman government authorities that conspired to kill Jesus, to murder Jesus. But on another level, it refers to demonic spiritual forces. In Ephesians 2, Paul calls them the powers and principalities. The real demonic spiritual forces that empower and work behind and through the structures and systems of power in our world. And so what Paul means then is that in what seemed to be God's greatest moment of weakness, in what seemed to be God's defeat, in the death of his son, in the shame of the cross, we actually see God's greatest triumph over the evil one and all of his demons. Jesus delivers us from the tyrannical outside forces that once ran this world before Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He delivers us from the power of the evil one. That imagery of triumphing over them recalls an ancient Roman war general. When a Roman general would win a battle, uh, the standard approach was to enter the city that he had just conquered, leading behind him a trail of bedraggled and shackled prisoners from the defeated army. 
And this is the language that Paul's using here of Jesus. The message of the gospel is forgiveness of our debt of sin and deliverance from the grip of evil and death. Praise God for that. Jesus then is enough because Jesus triumphs over the most powerful enemies in this universe at the cross and at the empty grave. And through faith, we triumph in him. I'm going to close with this. When we were in Bolivia this summer, uh, we had the opportunity to do a lot of evangelism. It's a good reason for you to consider coming on a summer mission trip with Christ Church. Uh, You see God at work in profound ways. And on numerous occasions, uh, I would be speaking with some of the people in Bolivia, the villagers in the towns in which we were seeking to partner with churches to minister and plant churches. And we would begin to share the gospel with them. And I would ask them, have you ever heard of Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Sometimes they would say yes. Sometimes they would say no. But on a couple of occasions, when people would say, yes, I know Jesus, they would immediately follow up by telling me something else. And they would tell me in Spanish. So I'd have to wait on the translation. And the translation would come back. And they were basically saying, yes, I know about Jesus, but I'm being persecuted by a demon. Now, for Western white Americans like me, I was like, not much experience with that. Didn't get that in seminary too much. Um, And so what would we do in those occasions? And on a number of occasions, these women would give me really just detail-packed stories of how they had experienced demonic oppression and the powers and the principalities seemed to rule over them. And uh, so we would pray for these women and we would lay our hands on them and share the gospel with them and speak to them. And I remember one woman in particular, I was with my translator and my translator kind of took off on her own, which I appreciated because I'm a white American and didn't know what to do. The translator began to say, Jesus Christ is more powerful than the demons that have haunted you. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have faith in his name, the power of his resurrection is applied to your life and they will stop plaguing you right now. Do you believe that? That's true. That's what Paul's saying. And if that's true, then Jesus is enough. Why would we settle for second best when we have in Jesus all the riches and treasures of wisdom and knowledge? You have all you need in Jesus Christ. You have all of God's fullness in Jesus. You have present resurrection power in Jesus. You have forgiveness of guilt in Jesus. You have triumph over evil in Jesus. Don't fall for the allure of exclusivity. Don't fall for the idea that you need to get something else to really get close to God. Stick with Jesus. In him, we have all we need. In him, we have more than we need. Let's pray.